You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Very good. Thanks, Amy. Fantastic. Good to see you here this morning. And uh, we're concluding our uh, 10-week series. We've been hanging out for 10 weeks in the book of Hebrews uh, based on the idea that Jesus is better. And, And I wonder if you're here this morning and you've ever considered in the deep recesses of your heart that nobody is completely on your side. Uh, I wonder how many in this room have thought to themselves, even though I'm in a room full of people, you might work in a crowded space, that really I'm pretty much on my own. There's a sense of isolation. I want to suggest that you're not the only person who has felt or who feels like that. It's probably to some degree an inevitability at some point of our life that we go through Seasons of isolation, some of those seasons for some are longer than others, and it can leave you feeling a little bit overwhelmed and maybe even depressed. If, uh, if that's your current experience or maybe uh, a past experience, I really would ask you to lean in this morning because I believe God's got something for you. Uh, the, uh, the better of today, as we're going to see as we conclude our series In the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, we're going to find out that Jesus is a better friend. This book was written to a bunch of Jews, as we've said every time just about we've started, uh, Hebrews, uh, who were believers in Jesus Christ and so that ostracized them from their religion and left them feeling pretty much persecuted for their faith. And so this uh, letter was written to them, or it's a sermon really, was written to them to put courage and hope into their hearts, into their spirits. And I pray that that will be the effect upon you this morning. Um, We're going to read from the second last verse, actually, of the, the, the second last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're starting in chapter 12, verse 28. Of course, remember that the chapters were never there when the book was initially, or the letter was initially written. They were put in later just to help us get around them. But it says this, it says, uh, since, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and last week we looked at that kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an identity that's based in heaven, a a joy and a future. Uh, We looked at the life that cannot be shaken last week, and, and so the author picks up on that idea, and he says, as a result of that, therefore, because of last week, now, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to get onto the website, uh, onto the app. If you haven't got our Centro Church app, the easiest way to get this stuff is through the app. And you, and you can get the download. All 10 of the series are there. But last week flows on to this week because as a result of that, now this. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. Interesting. The fact that he said that would perhaps indicate you can worship God unacceptably. I don't know about you, but if you're a believer here this morning, I I imagine you want to believe, you want to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's stop there for a moment. Um, That meant a lot to this group of people. I've already told you they were Jews, Hebrews. And when we talk about God as a consuming fire, what do you think comes into their mind? What do you think they picture? 
I, I will suggest to you, it's, 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 to a, someone who studied it's quite obvious, it was Mount Sinai. When God, they first met God. They'd been in Egypt for 400 years, crying out to this God they wasn't even sure was there. And then finally, through great signs and wonders, they come out of Egypt and they come through the desert to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where they met God. And that was a horrible experience. Um, if they touched the mountain, they would die. Uh, it was terrifying and traumatic to say the very least. But then this, this holy God that's on this mountain with Moses, while we're all staying away from the mountain as far from it as we can get, God comes down off the mountain and into this tent that we build called a tabernacle, and then into this box that's in the very center of this tabernacle called the Ark of the Covenant. And in that box, if you will, is the presence of God. And so they ask, them, they ask themselves this question. Now God lives with us, how should we behave? Um, I don't know how many of you have been following our reading guides uh, on our app. We've got our reading guides where we read through the Old Testament once every two years and the New Testament once a year. We do our soap. And uh, we've just been through Leviticus and almost to the end of Deuteronomy. Now, don't put your hands up, but how many find that really hard? <laughs> how many of you have ever thought to yourself, I'm going to read the Bible through? Amen. And you start off in the book of Genesis, and there's some interesting stories there. There's a lot of, you know, sex and violence to keep you engaged, you know. And, uh, and then you sort of you get through Genesis and, and, and Exodus. That's not so bad, you know. But then you get to Leviticus. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Who give, who's ever th- said they're going to read the Bible? No, don't put your hand up. And given up when you got to the book of Leviticus, right? Now, now, here's why. Here's why. The book of Leviticus answers the question, now God's moved in, how should we live? Because now God has moved in with us. Before, God was just sort of out there somewhere, but now he's living in our midst. And gee, that's got to, you know, change the way we behave, Right? And so there's this whole Leviticus and some degree Deuteronomy that's there to tell us how to live. Well, that's what's going on here. Okay? That's what's, you see, because this, you know, holy God, this, this God of consuming fireism is now with us, how should we worship? How should we behave? The question, the same question is asked, and to a very large degree, Hebrews 13 is like the New Testament uh, version of Leviticus. Uh, it seems a bit anticlimactic. <laughs> it's kind of like, we've been waiting, 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 and oh, that's it, is it? It does seem a little bit like a, um, a random miscellaneous bunch of ethical prescriptions. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, really? Okay, let's move on. But there is some really important stuff here, and you've got to understand it in this context. The context is now God is with us, not just in a tent somewhere, but God actually indwells us. God is in our hearts. God is with us. As a result of that, this consuming fire now dwells your very spirit. As a result, how should you behave? Well, let's have a look and see what it says, shall we? Um, Listen, before I read this, can I put out a, a warning a warning, warning, warning. <laughs> um, this gets pretty intense. Uh, this may even get offensive for some people, and I apologize about that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, 
you're off the hook. You don't really have to listen to this. This, is, this doesn't apply to you. In fact, this could well be the reason why you're not a Christian, all right? So I get that. <laughs> um, but it, it, this is a lot more intense than a cursory reading might give you, and we're going to dig into it a little bit, but I just wanted to put that warning out there. Uh, so if anybody gets offended, don't get offended at me. I don't write the stuff, okay? Uh, we're just kind of stuff when you... This is this problem. When you're going through a book, you kind of get stuck with what's there. You, sort of don't, you can't really choose it. So let's read it together. Uh, this is how you worship God acceptably. That's the question. How do I worship God acceptably in light of the fact that this consuming fire now indwells my heart? There is a clear and present answer. You may not like it, but it's here. This is what it says. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Let's stop here for a minute. Let's deal with this. What he's saying is you cannot worship God and experience his power and his presence without some sense of deeply strongly embedded robust close christian community how do we worship god acceptably through being involved in radical relationships with other believers he uses the term brothers and sisters Philadelphia is the uh, Greek word, and you've all probably heard Philadelphia, brotherly love. Um, it's not about rituals. It's not about kind of uh, performances. It's about deep participation in radical new connections. This is how we show the glory of God in this New Testament times. This is how we experience the unshakable life. You see, before the the death of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, what did he do? Note what he didn't do. He didn't read a book, uh, write a book, I should say. Um, He didn't marshal an army. He didn't build a monument. What did Jesus do? What did the Son of God do to, if you will, um, memorialize his coming? He created a community. In fact, it's what he did post his, um, his resurrection. He calls us a city on a hill. He calls us a new nation. It's something you can't do on your own. You have to be deeply embedded into a New Testament community to worship God effectively. You know what the ancients said of this new knockoff Jewish sect called Christianity? They were very critical of it. They said their scandalous behavior, they despise their own privacy and hold their possessions in common. He uses arguably one of the most radical metaphors to describe this in this particular verse here that he could. He talks here about the, the, the brotherly, sisterly connection, the sibling connection. Um, how many have got, don't put your hand up, but how many in this room, a rhetorical question, have siblings? Or a lot of people in this room have siblings. How many know that your brothers and sisters aren't necessarily the kind of people that you choose as your friends? <laughs> right? I got more than one laugh than I was expecting. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, you know, if, if you could, you can choose your friends, but you can't pick your relatives, right? You know what I'm saying? But the funny thing is, 
despite all the misunderstandings you've had with your siblings over the years, and there's been a fair bit, hasn't there? (laughs) Despite the fights, despite the shocking things that they did to you when you were small, (laughs) you still have that abiding sense of obligation to them, don't you? And it's right. That's actually right. You should feel that. That's the way we create it. They are children of your mother and father. No matter how weird they are, they are your blood. They are your flesh. Now, look around. Have a quick look around. Wouldn't necessarily choose them as your friends, would you? Have a look. <laughs> Seriously? I mean, this lot? You hear I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, God, if God has brought you here, God has placed you here with this lot of people. And, and now it's up to you as to what you do with that. You, you, you can choose to be members of a club, the Christian club, that comes of a Sunday, you know, and shakes a few hands and waves their hands around a little bit, listens and leaves. But you're going to miss the presence and power of God in your life. Make no mistake. Because we're not called to a Christian club. See, the thing is, you might go to a club, you might go to a sporting club, and in the sporting club, right, you might discuss the sport. Uh, you might speak to the other players and, well, we could have kicked the ball there or we should have done this. And you might have an in- intense and deep discussion about the nuances of the game. But probably no one says to you, are you still going out with them? What are you thinking? Because there's boundaries. Right? There's boundaries there. Professionally, you go to work and you probably discuss at work you know, matters pertaining to your employment how we can do it better, what needs to change, and so forth and so on. But does one of your work colleagues say to you, you really shouldn't be spending your money on that. You really shouldn't be wasting your money over there because there's boundaries. How many know that in the context of family, those boundaries don't exist? Within the context of family, you can be challenged over what you do with your money. You can be challenged over where you're going and who you're going with. Because in the context of family, there is no airs and graces. Our daughter said to us the other day, she had two little ones. She went to the bathroom and found them both sitting on the toilet together. (laughs) Well, they both needed to go at the same time. It seemed the obvious answer to the problem. (laughs) Tip over. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that, but, uh, but I am suggesting that within the context of family, there is this broad parameter whereby we get into each other's spaces, whereby we can speak the truth to one another in love. Uh, siblings share the same home, they share the same inheritance. We share the same home, we share the same inheritance in Christ. You know, um, not, not only that, not only is there an unconditional commitment, an economic commitment, an emotional commitment, but it is the single most influencing shaping of your life is your family. So you, you might think, oh, no, I've got where I am because of the choices I've made, and good for you, and, and many of you have made great choices. 
I've got where I am because of my gifts, my talents, my smarts. And, you know, to some degree, that's not out of the equation. But the older you get, the more you realize you are where you are because of your family. The more you realize just how much your family has shaped you. Uh, More than your choices, your decisions, more than your education, and more than your therapist, it's the community that shapes you. How do we worship God acceptably? In his community. See, if you just come to the service and you sit there and you never give up any of your privacy, you never become accountable, then you're missing out on the power of God's word to shape your life. All you can do is sit there and judge the quality of what's being said or what's being done. And there is little transformative effect if that's the approach. But when you're in a group of people and you are knocking it out with one another, when there is this sense of accountability and all of a sudden you're not on your pedestal anymore, Right? You're not up here determining what you like and what you don't like. You're in an environment where you're being challenged about the way you speak or the way you behave and how this works. and That's what makes you more like Christ. That's the power and that's the presence of God. I've got to tell you, folks, listen very carefully now. Um, people who watch you know, um, television, and get all of their Christian teaching from this, you know, uh, over this platform whereby we're not involved. There's no community. There's no thrashing of life. There's no connection. Become very smart Christians, but not very effective ones. Because the effectualness of your Christianity has very much a strong connection with how much of your privacy you have revealed to other believers in Christ. Love one another as brothers and sisters, he says. How should we behave? How should we worship effectively? What we need to do is get out of our cocoons, become real with one another, and let, and let the Spirit of God move through that person and that person and that person to affect my life. I didn't think there'd be a lot of enthusiasm around that. <laughs> Because that's actually somewhat countercultural to the Aussie mindset where we like to get a little five-acre block outside of town, put out a wall and just you know, connect with people via the internet. Uh, he, he goes on here and he, he strikes this very interesting balance. And this is counterculture because normally what happens, you can get a really tight-knit community, but normally where there's a tight-knit community, it's closed. Normally where everybody's in each other's worlds and you know there is this sense of of economic and emotional and relational commitment, normally that's really hard to break into. And I think the author understood that when he wrote that because the very next verse says this, and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Oh, seriously? Well, I've got all the friends I need. You know, I've been here for 25 years. I've got my connections over here and over here and over here. These are like my, you know, these are like my brothers and sisters. We love each other. We kind of, we're there. It's kind of like he understood that's what would happen. That's the natural flow. And so he puts this in there and then he really rams it home with this next phrase, doesn't he? 
right? Just in case you thought you could give that one a bit of a pass. Just in case you thought, well, no, that's for the pastor or that's for this person, you know, not for me. I just go and listen and leave. He says this. He says, for by doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Oh, boy, if I knew there was an angel coming today, man, I'd invite that angel home for dinner, wouldn't you? I mean, seriously, I'd let the angel stay at my house a few days. If I really knew that person was a divine angelic being, then, oh, boy, my attitude would change, wouldn't it? Well, he's just let us in. He said, Some, if this is your approach, if this is your attitude, if you have this commitment uh, to work like crazy at loving the insiders, but not just that, work like crazy at loving the outsiders, that just might be the outcome. And no doubt he's giving reference to Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, who did entertain angels uh, unawares, to G- Luke 24, where they actually entertained Jesus and they didn't really know it at the time. Now, now, this was, again, completely opposite to the culture of the day. The, Rome was ruled by a, what you would call a quid pro quo culture. Do you know what I mean by quid pro quo? You know, you, you scratch my back, uh, I scratch yours. Quid pro quo. Right? It's you, do, you do me a favour, I'll do you a favour, that will put you in my debt because one day I'm going to call my favour in. And that's how the whole Roman society worked, basically. You would entertain people, in so doing, you're building up a debt that you'll call when you need it because, well, you know, that's the way society works. Get ahead by getting the right people in your room and then they owe you. But there was none of that kind of need to prove and there was none of that kind of need to respond in this Christian community. And, and they, uh, the, the society of the day found it quite offensive. Um, they would sacrifice for others. They would put themselves out for others who had, who had no connection to their community whatsoever. And uh, it, it was somewhat shocking. And then he goes on and he says this, the author. Remember, this is answering the question, how should we worship a holy God, a, a God of power, of fire? He says, continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. And then he, he, it seems like he takes a completely different tact. He doesn't. He says marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all who are sexually immoral. Now, again, these two verses work very well together. I'm going to show you how that works in a moment. But they also rebel against the spirit of the day they are rebellious verses against the spirit of the day again the ancients said of the christians they share their tables with anybody but their beds with nobody that was their observation what that mean that mean that they'll give their food to anybody right but they won't take just anybody to bed they won't have sex with anybody which was counterculture to the Roman ethos. In the Roman ethos, they would have sex with anybody, but don't eat my food, because my food costs money, and I don't have an endless supply of money. So it was all about me. It was all about my selfish desires and my self-centred motivations. So I'll have sex with anybody who I, you know, who I want to, who I think is going to make me feel good, but I'm not going to share my food with anybody because 
you know, I've had to work hard to buy that food. Give me this day our daily bread. They, they worked on this kind of subsistence, daily acquisition of money to buy food. And so the observation outside of Christendom towards Christians was they'll share their table with everybody or anybody and their beds with nobody. Was really kind of bizarre to those outside looking in. But let's think about it for a minute because in actual fact, it makes all the sense in the world. Let me explain to you why. Because have you ever noticed... That when two people have sex outside of marriage, it always damages community. Always. It always wrecks it. How many have seen um, you know, sex keep a bad relationship together or, uh, or, or destroy a good relationship outside of marriage? Um, sex outside of marriage always destroys community. Always undermines it. Always hurts people, doesn't it? And you know, oh, well, we're consenting adults. Yeah, but what about your kids? How do your kids feel? Man, the kids are devastated. How do your parents feel? The thing is, you're not isolated. You're part of a community. And when you use your sex for nothing more than your own personal gratification, you are destroying the mechanisms whereby which we worship God uh, acceptably, which is as a community. Is it any wonder he wrote this? Is it any wonder he says, if we're going to live as brothers and sisters, I better put some pretty clear you know, parameters around here because sex outside of marriage will destroy the community and you know that to be true because you've seen it. You've watched people's lives, uh, and to be honest with you, it's a statistical fact that you know, the more sexual partners you have, the easier it is for, for families to break apart. And so it's no wonder he puts it here. Not, not just that, but he's talking about you know, going to the per, per, people in jail and you know, helping the, the, the downcast or whatever. And again, it's a matter of taking your resources and using, leveraging your resources for the betterment of the community. And seriously, I mean, what are you less likely to tell the truth about other than your sex and your money? Is there anything? Is there anything more personal to you than what you do with your money and what you do with your sex? I want to suggest to you that they are probably the two most uh, uh, guarded parts of your life. And what the author is saying here is that those two things that, that you know, our society today is no different to our society back then, used them pretty much for personal, uh, for personal security and personal enjoyment. Hello? Is that not right? Thank you. One person believes it. Everyone else is a bit shocked. I think, I don't know. I don't write the stuff, okay? I just, just work with what I'm, where I'm at here. I'm doing the best I can. So don't stop looking at me in that tone of voice. Um, You use these things for yourself, and when you do, you destroy the community. That's what he's saying. You see, um, the foundation of any community is obviously the husbands and wives. It's It's the marriages and then the families. And what weakens the community is is weakened marriages. And what weakens a marriage more than infidelity? You know, not much. I guess there are things, but not much. And so this is not written from the point of view of some kind of 
you know, um, lecturing. Don't do this and don't do that. This is written from the point of view of building the community because that's the acceptable way to worship God. Do you see that? So this is actually great information. It's a tremendous way for us to live because where your most personal and pleasurable assets are used for the benefit and for the strengthening of others. We have strong families. We have strong churches. We have strong communities. And that's, what he's, that's where he's taking this. And verse 7 says this. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their ways, the way of their life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Uh, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, uh, which is of no benefit to those who do so. What's he saying here? How do you do this? How do you create community? It's, it's a grace act. He says, remember the gospel. It comes back to experiencing, accepting the grace of God into your life and then letting the grace of God flow through you. That's the answer. How do you build, how do you, how do you live this kind of a life? Simply ask this question, how would grace respond? How does grace respond to this circumstance? How does grace respond to this temptation? How does grace respond to this particular problem? It's a grace thing. But I think the whole thing is predicated on verse 5. Let me read verse 5 and that'll be the last piece of Hebrews uh, that we read. He says this, I think verse 5 is the key here. Just keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So what is he saying there? He says, don't be greedy and don't be lustful. That's what he just said. Because greed and lust destroys the community. We all, we, we all agree with that? We all say, yeah, that's right. Okay. So how do you do that? How do you live a, a lust-free, greed free life let's have a look because he gives us the answer right here because he says god has said never will i leave you never will i forsake you when you get when you get the power of those few words something internally changes you lose that angst that hunger that 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 worry that concern for your future i don't need emotional significance or future security outside of anything else but god i I could translate that verse um and i could give you some reasons why but it's somewhat a waste of time Let, let me just say this what that verse is saying is this god says to you i will never Never, 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 never leave you alone. You can embrace that. That God will never, 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 never leave you alone. See, there could well be people here that you're compromising um, your conscience. Uh, because you're fearful of being alone. And maybe there's people here and you're not really compromising your conscience 
out of fear of being alone, but you're carrying the fear just the same. And maybe there are other people here this morning, you're saying, well, I don't fear being alone because, hey, I've got a spouse, I've got a family, I've, I've, got, this, I've got this great relationship. I, I, don't, I don't fear being alone. And guess what? You're all wrong. <laughs> you're all wrong. Unless you know God at the centre of your being, the best spouse in the world, the greatest kids in the world, the most wonderful parents, the closest friend, will inevitably forsake you. They will let you down, even if they meet your expectations every time, which is unusual. But even if they did, you know, in the end, they'll either die and you'll be left alone, or you'll die. And when you die, they won't be there with you. (laughs) That's why God has to be at the centre. That's why if God is at the centre of my relationships, that's why if I've centred my world on God, he says, I will never, 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 never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never leave you alone. Even in death, I am there. Even when you die, you don't die alone. God is with us. You know how you, know how you can feel that? You know how you can know that? You see, on the cross, the opposite happened, didn't it? Jesus said, God, why have you forsaken me? God took, Jesus took our cosmic aloneness, our in- eternal insecurity on the cross because he was forsaken. We aren't. Because he thought, because God had left him, God doesn't leave us. In fact, Jesus said, didn't he? Didn't he? I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. David said, my father and mother may abandon me, but the Lord will take care of me. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus became homeless and alone so that you can have a place and a people. And the degree at which you can accept this, the degree in which you can lean into the fact that he became homeless, that he embraced rejection, And that he is affirming you. He took that so you don't have to wear it. The degree in which you can do that is the degree in which you're free. To give you money, to give you time, to give you heart. So what really matters to God, which is the community. Which is not just me, but I am part of a whole. I am free to open up the people. I don't have to say, geez, look at these people. I'm not like them. There's nobody here who's like me. I look around and they're all losers compared to me. Uh, <laughs> who could I connect with? Who could I, who could I you know, uh, unite with? You're free of that. You don't have to. You're liberated from that class warfare because your acceptance is found in Christ. And there's one thing that all followers of Jesus have in common And it should be the greatest point of commonality that exists. And that, of course, is him. You see, what this is fundamentally saying is that the way up is the way down. The way to be powerful is to serve. This this, This whole ethical outline that we're given here at the end of the book is not just tips not just ideas on what we could or should or, or, or would do if we were better, but it's how to worship God 
and how to experience his power and how to experience his transformative purpose in our lives. The way to be rich, to give it away, it's so counterintuitive. The way to be powerful is to serve. The way to find angels is to embrace the destitute. I know that we've got a, a team every Saturday that go up to the Queen's Park and, and provide breakfast to um, people who you might define as down in luck, as destitute, and you'd have to wonder, have they given a, a sausage to an angel? <laughs> read the Bible. I mean, you either believe it or you don't. You know, we provide accommodation to homeless young women at Hannah's house. You'd have to ask the question over the years. And they have any beds were given angels. What if that was an angel? I don't know. All I'm saying is, hey, he said, you're unaware of it. But if you do it, you'll come across angels and you didn't even know it. <laughs> the way to get God into our life, give our lives, our finances, our calendars, our hearts away. The hospitality of God. God has embraced us, brought us into his family so that we can bring others into our family. Let me be real practical and we're going to pray and finish. Let me give you four things that I think really we need to do as a result of that understanding of worshipping God acceptably. Um, number one, uh, invite somebody to church and take them for a Krispy Kreme donut or something. <laughs> take them for lunch. If there's a lot of them, you can only afford a donut, that's fine. <laughs> but if there's one or two, you can give them a feed. <laughs> but do something for them. Uh, invite somebody, but then take them out and, and show them kindness, show them hospitality. Can I encourage you, we have numerous connect groups in our church, many. And uh, can I, if you're going to run one, that's great. Can I encourage you to run one or at least help someone run one? Run one or, or if not, maybe you could host one. So hospitality, open up your home, be hospitable. Build the community. Don't hide behind your busyness. Don't hide behind the pretenses of life. Somehow I've got to take that. I've got to take my privacy and I've got to sacrifice it for the power of God. Um, that was three. And the last one is, look, what, what could you do to um, make it easier for other people to be part of the community? What I mean by that is maybe you could welcome people at the door. Maybe you could help look after their children in the kids' ministry. Maybe you could help prepare some food to um, congregate around in a few moments' time. All of these things, it's, it's, not about a, a, it's not about an institution functioning. It's about an acceptable way to worship God, to love one another as brothers and sisters. To embrace strangers into our midst and to give 
the things that are closest to our heart away for the purpose of building the community of Jesus on the earth, knowing full well that as we do that, he's with us, building up. Our heads begin to pray. Father, Lord, I thank you today that we can have this living, alive relationship with you that's better than life itself. Lord, when all the things that this world has to offer us, the prestige, the fame, the wealth, the, uh, the experiences, Lord, none of these things come close. Jesus, he's better than them all. Father God, I pray no matter what our experience that's brought us to this point, that we would see the reality and the power of Christ as better than it all and lean into that as you've outlined in your word with all that we're worth in Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand together? Thank you for listening to this podcast. 